0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The St. John's Illuminated Bible is a handwritten, illuminated Catholic Bible adorned with colors, art, and calligraphy. It is the first such Bible made in 500 years. The Bible is housed at St. John's University in Minnesota and is the subject of a few books by this episode's guest, Jonathan Homrichhausen. Jonathan Homrichhausen is the author of Illuminating Justice, the ethical imagination of the St. John's Bible, out from liturgical press in 2018, and is also the author of this episode's subject, the brand new 2022 book, Planting letters and weaving lines, calligraphy, the Song of Songs, and the St. John's Bible. This new book goes into depth on the metaphors found within the St. John's Bible in a gorgeous way. If you search Jonathan Homerichhausen in this podcast, you will find our first conversation from his first book. It's great to have Jonathan back on the show, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jonathan Holmrichhausen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to chat with you.
1: Jonathan, um, I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there who may not know you or your work, so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do.
2: Oh, Greg, I, your your question assumes that I know who I am and what I do. Mm-hmm. Um That's a tough assumption to make. Well, (laughs) I would say I was born at a very young age. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm being a little ridiculous. Um, I would describe myself as working at the intersection of sacred text, scribal craft, and calligraphic art. Um, a niche that I fell into through my work on the St. John's Bible, the um, subject of our podcast today. Um, If you want my institutional affiliations, I am currently a PhD candidate at Duke University in the graduate program in religion. My focus is Hebrew Bible, but my interests are broader. And I'm also teaching as an adjunct lecturer at the College of William and Mary, which has wonderful students.
1: Wonderful. And you're the author of a couple of books, um, the first of which we already have talked about on this podcast. March 20th, 2019, you and I did a part one episode on the Classical Ideas podcast, which was also released uh, on the New Books Network later in 2022. And we discussed your your earlier book, Illuminating Justice, The Ethical Imagination of the St. John's Bible, which uh, you just alluded to a moment ago. And so, you know, just right off the bat, um, I'm wondering if we can just set the stage a little bit to talk about this new book that you've got. For those who don't know, what is the St. John's Bible? Give us a little potted introduction to this uh, this topic that you have grown to love so much.
2: Okay, um, the St. John's Bible is an illuminated manuscript of the entire Catholic Bible that was completed in uh, 2011. Now, when I say illuminated manuscript, illuminated, that is, it has gold, it has color, and manuscript, just meaning it's written by hand. Um, So this is the the people who created it, which it was a collaboration between the monks of St. John's Abbey and Collegeville, Minnesota. Um, These are the the same monks that run St. John's University and liturgical press. Um, So that's why it's called the St. John's Bible, not because it's owned by St. John himself, which would be (laughs) uh, quite a find on many levels. Anyway, the the monks uh, in the late 90s, I almost said the the late last millennium, (laughs) decided they wanted to celebrate the new millennium by commissioning uh, this Bible. They wanted to do something that was uh, a statement of their values, that was a major cultural product um, uh, project. Um, And so they reached out to Donald Jackson, who is one of the most famous calligraphers in the English language world, um, had had a a very successful career of several decades. Um, By that point, doing calligraphy, he was the chief scribe to the Royal Crown of England. um, And he had wanted to do a Bible. Because as Donald Jackson said, it's a calligrapher's Sistine Chapel. It's the ultimate challenge. It is the mm. defining project. Um, but of course, <laughs> you, you don't just start that on your own in a backyard. You need a you need a patron who will work with you. Um, so the the marriage of patron and artist, and not just one artist, because Donald had a whole team of scribes and artists, and it, it was a huge project with many people. Um, not only the the artists, but all the you know all the people behind the scenes, the people who did the fundraising, et cetera. So they, um, so they, they like to call it America's book of Kells, which is maybe the best way to explain it, both Mm. because, uh, it's this monumental project of sacred text and art and, um, and historic technique, but also, um, they're hoping that just like the book of Kells in a millennium, people will still be looking at it.
1: Amazing. Uh, you know we we talked about this on the on the earlier episode but this second book that you've just put out um planting letters and weaving lines calligraphy the song of songs and the saint john's bible is completely completely beautiful and extraordinarily well made um as far as like you know depicting the visual power of this illuminated bible but before we talk about this book i'm just like so curious about your personal interest in the saint john's bible like why do you love this topic so much why do you love this this piece of work so much that has brought you back to make numerous books about it at this point
2: well, I mean, where do you start? I guess I could start, you know, at seven years old. I, I had I was like obsessed with pens and I had a little um pen collection. Like I would collect ballpoint pens. I remember hitting a hundred and getting very excited. I kept them in a in a checks mix box. So I mean you could go you could go back far. Um, (laughs) I was a weird kid like most
0: academics.
2: (laughs) And uh, I guess the more proximate answer is I was working as a student assistant in my library's archives and special collections. And um, we had one of the facsimiles that is a sort of very uh, high quality reproduction of the St. John's Bible, all seven volumes of it. Um, And my boss said, can you learn a little bit about this to explain it to people? And Mm -hmm. that Sort of um i you know i i have add so sometimes you you get a sort of hyper focus on something and uh that that was the rabbit hole i went down so uh that that's how i got into it and um the more i've gotten into it the more you know the more layers you find and that's also been exciting so i, I wrote my earlier book um I, it, it was um more about the images and That was when people would come to look at the St. John's Bible when I was serving as a docent. Most of the people came in wanting to look at the images. And um, this book is perhaps more mm, off the wall, maybe, because it's more about the letters. And Mm -hmm. most people coming to look at the Bible were less interested in the calligraphy itself, or they would just say, oh, it's pretty. And I, I wanted to show there were more layers to it than just, it's pretty letters.
1: Wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm wondering about your life too, uh, you personally, between the first book and the second book, between 2018 and 2022, 2023, um, between these two creations that you've made for these, for the, for these books, um, what happened after the first book that led to the second book? Oh, well,
2: <laughs> the, I always say every time you write a book, um, you, you hit a point where you realize you're writing 150% of a book. And you have to sort of take that 50% and just chop it off and save it for the next thing. So even when I was writing the first book, I had uh, a lot of interest in specifically the Song of Songs, Illuminations. So just a little bit of background um, in the St. John's Bible, every the whole Bible, handwritten, and they picked certain texts that would receive visual treatment. Um, I'm, I'm avoiding saying illustration, because illustration often makes it sound like uh, the art is just sort of a mirror of what's going on in the text. But really, in the St. John's Bible, the arts is reflecting on the text, it's um, playing with, it's meditating on the text, it's its own creative endeavor. So they, the, when, when the St. John's Bible was being created, the monks and the artists um, decided, more the monks than the artists, but there, there was some conversation, decided what um, passages would receive special treatment. And you would think that it would be something like the Gospels, that would be the most illuminated uh, in terms of just how much imagery is there per page. But it's not the Gospels. It's not even the book of Revelation, which Mm. is they they went pretty wild on because it's a very visual book it, it's visions so it's not surprising but no it's the song of songs this this strange book that many people are not even so aware of now um, in the hebrew bible or the christian old testament but in the monastic spirituality of the monks the song of songs was sort of at the center so i realize i'm getting ahead of myself uh <laughs> i I knew when I wrote Illuminating Justice that there was a lot going on in the Song of Songs Illuminations, and I wanted to unpack them and play with them. And I did give a paper at the Society uh, for Biblical Literature doing so in, I believe, 2017.
0: Mm.
2: But of course, I had (laughs) in, in the middle of all that, two years of full-time coursework that, uh, pretty brutal, honestly. Um, and then immediately followed by <laughs> a move to another, um, a whole other state because my husband got a job in Virginia. Um, and so a, a lot a lot happened. Oh, and we converted from Christianity to Judaism, to Judaism um, which isn't really so relevant to the book, except in how... Uh, in Judaism, the the importance of the material of the book. You, you go to any synagogue and there's a Torah scroll and it has to be written by hand and it's sort of displayed and and held up and unrolled and rolled up. Like there, there's, there's a lot of symbolism in the material of the scroll of that format of the Bible, um, or at least the first five books of the Bible. So that, you know, in that way, it did help me understand better what was going on in the St. John's Bible.
1: Oh, that's so interesting, too, about they're both being handwritten. I really hadn't thought about how that might make you look at the St. John's Bible in maybe a slightly different way.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would say you, you can go back to the Hebrew Bible and this is not so this is a little bit in in planting letters and weaving lines but this is also sort of broader hunches have come to develop um you go back in the hebrew bible and there are a lot of places where the the materiality of text is significant right is ezekiel is given this scroll and he has to eat it uh or there's a whole thing in in jeremiah 36 about a scroll that is sort of chopped up and burned um and so that that kind of strand of text, those stories, um, I think they they both play out in different ways in Judaism and Christianity. In Christianity, you have the whole idea of the word made flesh, like the Jesus is the word. And so you could, it's not a far le- leap to say Jesus is a book. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then in, in uh but you also have this whole other dynamic of the, the spirit over the letter. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a whole other trajectory in Christian thought that is places that at least says the materiality of the book is not really important. Um, and so you, you know, you get like certain certain groups of Christians where the more beat up your Bible is, if it's held together with duct tape and string and hope, like that's the best Bible because you've sort of used up the letter and taken the spirit. Yeah. It's very different from something like the book of Kells, where uh, you know, the 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 book is the the medium is part of the message.
1: I love it. Well, you know, something I do want to dig into Song of Songs. I've never talked about the Song of Songs on this podcast ever in the whole six years I've been doing this. And you just sort of mentioned that the that the Song of Songs is a little bit almost obscure at this point. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the history, maybe a teeny tiny bit of the history of the Song of Songs, what you know about it, and then talk a little bit about this uh, this forgottenness or this obscureness of it that has, uh, you know, come to be, you know, something you become aware of.
2: Yeah. So the the Song of Songs, um, also known as the Song of Solomon, one of the books of the Hebrew Bible, also known as Old Testament, also known as Tanakh, um, it's essentially eight chapters of love poetry. Um, most it's mostly a dialogue between two characters there's a few other characters that pop up but it's mostly a dialogue between a man and a woman Um, and they're they're having these conversations about their love for one another it's very deeply metaphorical and um, it's not that hard to get that there's a lot of sexual euphemism going on
1: very sexy it's quite sexy yeah, it's um, very sexy. <laughs>
2: I was amazed. So, I, I think there's a couple things going on. One is um as I tell my undergrads, we have this modern idea that that religion does it, religion is about certain things um and you know everything else is secular. So if, if you're surprised that there's love poetry in the Bible, um that's because maybe you're you've, you've been raised on a certain idea that like religion is about God, not about sex. Um I don't think that's I don't think that's a very helpful way to think about the Bible in general, especially the Hebrew Bible. Um, but also the the imagery of lover and beloved, of man and woman, of um, husband and wife, it, it, it also is whether or not this probably does come from some kind of actual love poetry in ancient Israel. But the reason that it gets into the Bible, is probably pretty early on, maybe even, you know, in the century or two leading up to the first century. um, It's being read as uh, through the lens of, say, the prophetic marriage metaphor in Hosea and Ezekiel, the idea that that God is Israel's husband and that Israel is God's wife. So very early on, I'm trying to avoid the word allegory because there's a whole minefield there, but it's being read through the lens of not just love between humans, not just erotic love, but love between humanity and the divine. Mm. Um, and that plays out in in most of Jewish and Christian history of the song, whether it's for Jews um, reading it as God and Israel, or if you're Christian reading it as Jesus and the Church, or um, you know Jesus and the individual soul. There's different permutations of it, um, but that's that's a lot of what's going on in the Song of Songs and its history, both Judaism and Christianity. When you get to the The most persuasive argument that I have heard from David Carr is that when the, um, especially in the the Protestant Reformation, the rise of the literal sense of scripture, um, when all of the the allegory and the powerful idea of the romance between God and humanity, when that was taken out, then you see a lot less interest in the Song of Songs in Christian churches. So if you look in the Revised Common Lectionary, it doesn't appear a whole lot, Mm. But if you go to the Middle Ages in in the Latin church, the Song of Songs is one of the most commented on books of scripture, and especially for monastic spirituality, um, it's very powerful. Um, So you think of people like John of the Cross or Bernard of Clairvaux, they wrote beautiful um, works of devotion inspired by the Song of Songs and using its language, its imagery. Gotcha.
1: I never even thought about the Song of Songs until I read the Toni Morrison novel, Song of Solomon, when I was like 25 years old. You know, so this was not something that I was ever even really aware of for many years. Hmm. Cool.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I read that novel. And um, yes, she knew what she was alluding to.
1: I love it. Well, you know, this book that you've written, um, Planting Letters and Weaving Lines, is based around metaphors. And I want to get into this a little bit. So you have the page as a garden, reading and writing as holy pilgrimage, text as woven textiles, and touching the page as touching the hand of the calligraphy scribe. The essentialness of metaphor in this book is so interesting to me and the book is based around like analyzing the connections between the illuminations in the bible um the word and metaphors and i'm wondering if you can give me sort of an overview of how the lyrical poetic approach of the song of songs assists in the illuminations found within you know that section of the saint john's bible that you're that you're talking about
2: this is uh, this is going to be fun to talk about the art um without images (laughs) And if you
1: need me to look at a certain page, I totally can too. If you want to talk about certain pages in the book, we can because I have my copy right here.
2: So an example that I really like to talk about. Um, the Page is a garden. So there were there were two insights that went into this book. One, I was interested in how this this um, very material Bible that is this written on animal skin. So it's quite literally word made flesh or word on flesh. Yeah. How this Bible, uh, of how how does the the medium of the Bible play with the very sensory and embodied poetry of the Song of Songs? Um, And second, I was trying to convey when people would come in and they'd look at the St. John's Bible and they'd say, the lettering is really beautiful. And I wanted to be able to say calligraphy is, I mean, yes, it's beautiful lettering and etymologically. Yes. But it's a little, um, a little pat. There's more going on than that. Calligraphy is not an art form that most people, you know, if you take an art appreciation class, you don't really learn how to look at calligraphy as an art form. Mm. Um, Calligraphers have talked a lot about what makes calligraphy beautiful, what makes letters beautiful in general. Um, But I think I didn't, I, I I wanted to be able to communicate all of that to people who were looking at the St. John's Bible who maybe were less familiar with calligraphy as a whole. So a lot of what I'm doing in the book is finding ways to connect the uh, the imagery of the Song of Songs to the visual and the material aspects of the St. John's Bible and to the process of this Bible's creation. So it's all, it's, um, I take my cue from Ben Sean, who says form is the very shape of content, form and shape totally interrelated in the St. John's Bible or form and content. Um, And I even describe this in terms of the word made flesh, uh, the the, the content, the process, the making and the form, the flesh. So
1: I'll give an example. Yeah, I'd love to know like a favorite of yours.
2: Dancing at a very high level here. Um, One of my favorite examples, the page is a garden. Now, I didn't make these metaphors up because once i once I started to see them, you can go back to medieval literature and and people were very aware of this because the the medievals lived in a manuscript world, right? calligraphy for them or, or writing things by hand wasn't just uh, an art form, but it was how you conveyed any kind of textual information um, before you had the printing press. So, a garden, for example, Part of the aesthetic of a garden is there's a certain amount of order. You plan out a garden, and then there's also a certain amount of chaos because nature sort of takes its own direction. You can plant a whole row of flowers and they might be the exact same species, et cetera. You might plant them in the same place with the same amount of sunlight and water them the same amount, but they're all gonna look slightly different. Every rose blooms a little bit differently. And so that's, that's a kind of human aesthetic um, and I, I, I compare that to calligraphy, where in the hands of a master calligrapher, every letter will look slightly different. They, they will. It's not uniform because it's, they harmonize. Uh, and a calligrapher knows how to harmonize not just all the A's on a page, but all of the A's with all of the other letters and the underlying shapes in any given script. Um, there's something more enjoyable about that. So as I put it, if, if calligraphy is like um, like a row of flowers, uh, <laughs> typography is like astroturf. It's it's neat. It's uniform. I'm hesitant to say that because I had at least one person say, <laughs> I know some typographers who would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also even on the pages of the St. John's Bible if, uh, and the Song of Songs, if you look at um, just for example, on page 18, the the page layout. There's the structure of the columns of text, mm. and then there's the chaos of the ornamentation, the marginal decoration going around, uh, not only around the page, the the margins of the page, but between the columns of text. There's a kind of order and chaos. Now, what's intriguing is that in the St. John's, in the Song of Songs, the woman describes her body as a garden. So the the woman's body is the garden, the page is a garden. There's this, there's this interesting interplay that works on multiple levels. And so the scribe is sort of planting, as I say, planting letters, like planting flowers.
0: Mm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
1: and I'm just w- looking at page 56. There's a a passage that says, "Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead." And these sentences and the these uh, these little lines start with why and no why looks the same. You know, it's all totally unique. And instead of like pressing something on a word processor on a computer, where every single thing will be completely identical, you have the complete uniqueness within every single you know pen stroke on the on these pages. I mean, it's really fantastic when you dive into the extremely small nuances of of just the written letters. Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: yes, that was a, that was a fun little. Happy accident to see all those y's in a row.
1: I love that um you know do you um the book is filled with like the vivid and incredible artworks, and I'm still looking back at page eighteen where it's got this large like red drawing here uh, with like a geometric piece that's filled in with like reds and browns. And it looks like there's like an entry into a garden and maybe an exit and then some, you know, geometric designs on the inside is because the artwork in this piece is not just an illustration. Like you said earlier, there's a lot of abstraction that goes into it where every single reader can get a different kind of. Uh, observation out of it. And it's not going to be the same thing for every reader. Is that kind of part of the um, process that you're describing to make it more unique for people to view the artwork as not just like completely illustrating it verbatim? You kind of have to make decisions on your own to analyze what the pictures mean for yourself as a viewer? Yes.
2: Yes. The short answer is yes. The long answer is the the creators of the St. John's Bible did not want to make some art that was narrowly didactic. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to provoke the viewer's imagination. So think of if if the reading the Bible itself is a good conversation starter, because there's a lot of places in the Bible where there's many ways to look at something or where there's a lot of ambiguity, either because um, the 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 text is sort of poetic and playful, or just the ambiguity of the fact that this is ancient literature, and we don't always understand the cultural context that uh, the earliest readers and and writers and hearers would have known. So to go back to the page you're talking about, Donald Jackson was very aware of Christian symbolism, the the, the iconography of Christian art, what things mean. Um, so here, this. I call it the the double calyxed pomegranate. Is what we mm. look at it. Pomegranates all over the Song of Songs. You know this very um, well. I, let's not get too explicit, but it, if if you think about it enough, a pretty sexual fruit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like you know, like fruit, eating fruit, sex. You know, when Harry Styles sings about watermelon sugar, like, <laughs> it's not this was he was not the first one. Okay, uh, maybe yeah. reading the Song of Songs. They no watermelons uh, in the Song of Songs, but uh, so that's part of it. Um, but also in both Judaism and Christianity, the pomegranate then becomes sort of allegorical fruit. So um, uh, you know, there's a whole idea of the pomegranate as there's all these little seeds. That, it, that live together in harmony within the pomegranate. And so it represents the church um, or it represents uh, in Judaism, There's an, there was an idea, there's 613 seeds in a pomegranate, just like mm. there's 613 mitzvot like mm-hmm. commandments that God gave at Sinai. Um, you could also look at this as a the um, top, uh, if, if you look at like a, a chalice from above, like the chalice in the Catholic mass. And so there, there's a whole other layer there about wine, both a symbol of uh, you know, sort of love eroticism, um, but then also in the mass, the blood of Christ. So we, again, we have this human divine and the human human love are sort of playing with each other in, um, in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. I also look at this garden as I, I call it the garden, sort of this the, squi- the circular garden um, like almost like a fountain in the middle. Mm-hmm. I also look at it through the lens of all the geometric designs in it that sort of entrance the eye. And I'm drawing. I'm drawing here from studies of um, insular manuscripts, things like the Lindisfarne Gospels, where there's all this intricate geometry that sort of draws you in and makes you gaze at it more closely. And in the vocabulary, in the visual language of the Saint John's Bible. This square image is also the temple, as seen in, for example, uh in Ezra, or is it Nehemiah? Ezra Nehemiah, as seen in the uh illuminations around the building of the temple. So the uh you get a lot of mileage out of this one thing. Is it's a wine chalice, um, or it's a pomegranate, or it's a temple, and it's a garden, and it's geometry. And uh, all of this, don't know how much of it Donald Jackson intended, but when he talks about the imagery in the St. John's Bible, he often says, um, "What do you think?" Mm-hmm. It, the, it's a conversation. You know, an artist makes something; it goes out in the world, and um, part of, for many artists, the joy is seeing people make meaning out of it, see things in it, um, make connections that you didn't even think of yourself when you made the work.
1: Yeah. I love that he invites us to make up our own minds too. It's just such a more, you know, powerful reading experience for for people to look at it. And the book is so much more effective because of the inclusion of so much color and artwork and the way that the you and the publisher have worked together to create, you know, a really uh vivid piece of work here is it it really makes it and i'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about the selection and inclusion of artworks and how you came about deciding on the pieces to be included in the text because there's so much color in this book and it just grabs your attention the second you flip through the pages tell me a little bit about like putting this together um as the author
2: I don't get a lot of credit for this because uh, you know I wrote a book and I <laughs> I just put in a lot of images and um, the publisher Liturgical Press is attached to St John's Abbey St John's University so this is a, a project very close to their heart so mm. I think they were they were willing to you know for, for a publisher anything with a lot of images anything with high quality glossy paper um, that they, they are by necessity more selective. About taking on such projects, um, and not to mention the work of all the the people who do the layout and the graphic design, and um, you know they did a really good job with this book. I don't get any credit for that. I, <laughs> I'm I'm not the Adobe InDesign person who does the layout, um, but I'm I'm very pleased with how the book looks, and I think that just has a lot to do with the fact that this this project is very close to the publisher's heart too.
1: I love it. You know, the book, I think you mentioned in the book that it there's a lot of connections between the way the book is made with the animal parchment and um, and the way that the the actual thing is put together that has kind of a direct link with ways that books may have been made like in more medieval times and well, you know, what do you find interesting about how the St. John's Bible links us to the methods of people who are making books from so far distant now in, in human history?
2: Oh, that's a good question. So when, 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 when people make books, for example, on animal skin, it's not, un, it's not, um, here's what I want to say. You can edit out my hemming and hawing, uh, if it, the, the people who are engaged in, for example, working on animal skin, you, you know that it was once a living being. Animal skin is not like paper. It is not uniform. Every sheet of parchment is different. And even if you, that's true, even if you're using the highest quality parchment, that is parchment that doesn't have blemishes, that doesn't have like holes because the animal had a scar or something, um, you know, a like good Clean parchment, usually from a younger animal. Um, Of course, if you look at medieval manuscripts, there's a lot of. uh, It's often more obvious than it is in the Saint John's Bible that it's written on an animal skin, because in medieval manuscripts, many of them are not on the highest quality of skin. So, not only are the people who make the Saint John's Bible using the medieval techniques, but I think it brings back an awareness of the meanings of these techniques that medievals had um i found plenty of medieval reflections on what does it mean that you have to kill animals to make a bible like it it's it's one thing to make a sacrifice and i'm saying sacrifice a little bit in scare quotes cuz you know you're not asking the cow um how it feels about being slaughtered to make a bible mm-hmm. um and it'll take a lot more than one cow but <laughs> um you know it is it is a sacrifice um much more than just paper so and and also the awareness of if jesus is the word made flesh the whole idea that um, christ had to die in order to uh, accomplish his task in order to um bring salvation so in a similar way, these cows have to die in order to <laughs> make a Bible that will teach about salvation. Like they're, they're, they're medieval reflections. People are very aware of this. So I think that's um, I think that's a lot of what's going on in the St. John's Bible. Uh, it's, it's bringing back these medieval techniques and not just for the sake of being quirky or antiquarian, but because there's still no paper that's as good as parchment. Parchment is very durable. Um, similarly, Donald Jackson will say writing with quills is better than any metal metal tip pen that you can find now to write with. Um, these are techniques that are harder, they're harder to learn, they're more quirky, they're, um, they're not tools that are neatly and uniformly mass produced. But if you learn how to use them, they achieve a result that Donald Jackson would say, metal nib on paper won't give you but they're also bringing but the techniques also sort of bring back all the meanings of these tools and these materials
1: i love it well i can tell that you had a really i i I, this book just exudes joy to me it is a wonderful beautiful book there's so much artwork for a visual person like me to latch into and really kind of dissect and your description of the book where you call it more of a bouquet of flowers as opposed to an academic monograph really really touched me um and i'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about like a book like this compared to how you might see it like in relation to like the academic world that you're that you're coming out of as well
2: oh well i mean you know academic books take many different forms some of them mm-hmm. are um they are um, tightly argued examinations of say you know you you could write a book about some um every 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 academic discipline is you know sort of hot debates right if you're in biblical studies and you want to write a book about the composition of the pentateuch you're you're wading through a a debate that is over a century long Um, and so you know that sort of book might need to be um more argument focused I'm drawing a very broad stroke here but uh, all this is to say there are many different kinds of academic books this one was more i had a, a broader idea in mind about how to look at calligraphy about how calligraphy um, and lettering arts play with form and content and process but each chapter is more uh, sort of a series of playful reflections bringing different things together bringing together my own looking at the images um, bringing together the song with the song of songs and with Uh, In some cases, the reflections of the scribes who worked on this Bible, as well as medieval sources, where scribes might give us little glimpses or windows into how they viewed their work, or images in medieval manuscripts that play with the the symbolism of books, in particular, the codex. Um, I just, I had a lot of fun bringing these things all together, and I wrote this book mostly in 2021, so, uh, you know, doing this was um, a great deal more fun than, you know, reading the latest COVID headlines. Um, yeah. so, you know, everybody had to sort of find something to do to keep their sanity during that time. Um, and, uh, I knew I wanted to write this. So where do you, where do you see your work going next? So I have, (laughs) when I, when I finished this book, I said to myself, I am, I have, I've run out of things to say about the St. John's Bible. Um, (laughs) I really thought that. And then unfortunately I did a wonderful weekend of uh, scholar in residence weekend with Suzanne Moore. who was one of the artists who worked on the Bible, uh, just a very creative and warm and intelligent person. Um, and just her art was amazing. And she was talking about some of the images that she made and there were all these layers that I had never seen. So there, there might be an article coming out about that, um, that we might, co-author. But right now, I'm trying to finish a dissertation. (laughs) And I've moved on to other things in contemporary calligraphy and lettering arts. There's a a very rich world out there of material that uh, not many people are writing about. It isn't really given the sort of credit it's due uh, in in, in the world of people who write about religion and art. I'm talking specifically about like Roman alphabet calligraphy. If you're doing Islamic calligraphy, there's a whole body of scholarship, wonderful work. If you're doing like calligraphy in East Asian religious traditions, um, a lot of rich material there too. But the the Roman alphabet material, I don't doesn't get the same kind of attention. So I, I have a book under contract about Martin Wenham, who does a lot of letter carving in wood, lives in Wales, um, and I'm also trying to teach a bunch of undergrads. So, you know, I I, I keep busy.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Jonathan, where can people find you if they want to follow along with your work? Are you like um, engaged online anywhere that people can can check out?
2: Well, I mean, I only have, I only inhabit one body, Greg. So if you want to find me, uh, yeah. Williamsburg, Virginia, <laughs> also known as Colonial Disneyland. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it's the you know it's not the only place in the world where you'll see people at the gas station dressed like they're from the 18th century but uh, yeah. it's one of the few so uh but you can also find my website i just revamped it and um i'm not on twitter much i'm on instagram more but you know i have i have a weird and unique name just google it you'll find me wonderful There's not too many Jonathan Homercowsons out there <laughs>
1: Well, Jonathan Homerkausen, it is a delight to have you back on the show. Um, If people wanted to check out our first conversation, they can find our chat on Illuminating Justice, the Ethical Imagination of the St. John's Bible, available at the Classical Ideas podcast and at On Religion with Greg Soden at the New Books Network. I am delighted to feature your new book, Planting Letters and Weaving Lines, Calligraphy, The Song of Songs, and The St. John's Bible. Out now. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, Greg, and I wish you the best in all of your endeavors.